Gemma Hill, a rising senior at Aspen High School, will interview Professor Keith Hawkins, assistant professor of astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin. He is a galactic archaeologist, and his research group focuses on the nature of the Milky Way, its formation, evolution, chemical makeup, and structure. He was an organizer of a workshop at the Aspen Center for Physics focused on this research with fellow astrophysicists. Keith received his BS in astrophysics with minors in mathematics and African studies from Ohio University, his PhD at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, UK, and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Columbia University. He is also deeply interested in mentoring students and encouraging underrepresented minorities in the STEM fields. And I think this will be a wonderful discussion. Gemma? All right, hello. And I have to preface this by saying I'm so excited to be here with you today. And I also have to tell you that I've spent quite a bit of time over my evenings trying to understand exactly what galactic archaeology goes into, and it's still a little bit of a mystery to me. So let's demystify, shall we? Um, would you mind just beginning with how you decided on physics in particular and what drove you to galactic archaeology? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I got involved in astronomy and physics at a very young age. I was in the fifth grade. I got involved in astronomy because I actually had a crush on a girl. <laughs> As it yeah. always Indeed. As it always happens. Indeed. It was my very first crush. She used to check out encyclopedias of astronomy. We would check out the pictures. We would look at pictures of black holes, and we would always get in trouble talking. It was awful. Um, and over the year, um, we would we would talk so much and about black holes and stars and things moving really fast in the universe and what the universe was and whether there was a multiverse. And unfortunately, the year after that, she moved away. <gasps> So to remind myself of her, I checked out the same encyclopedias of, of astronomy the year later. I was in sixth grade, you know, the transition, the ugly transition from elementary school to middle school. And those um, pictures got me through middle school, essentially. And um, by the time I got to high school, it was a full-blown passion. Um, and so I started doing research in high school on uh, initially on black holes because of that initial picture of a black hole but as i moved through college i did some research and um, research experiences for undergraduates sponsored by the nsf and uh, got to work with stars for the very first time i got to work with the spectra of stars the the beautiful color spectrum from blue to red and um, measure the detailed chemical composition of stars and from that point onward i was just interested in stellar chemistry and galactic archaeology very cool. I have to say, I'm right there with you. My fifth grade obsession was definitely the Higgs boson. So, um, is this your first time at the Aspen Center for Physics? And what do you think of the particular atmosphere that you get here with being able to work with other people in your field? Yeah, so this is my second time, actually, at the Aspen Center for Physics. I came back in 2018 um, to another conference on galactic structure and galactic science. And it was, that time was my first time. I, had just, I was just finishing up my postdoc, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, I got to you know, go on hikes with astronomers, and you don't realize this, but a lot of science actually happens over food or over drinks or on a hike somewhere or just looking up at the sky. You know, it's that 
um, those moments bring creative, creative, a very creative atmosphere that allows you to be able to think outside the box and solve problems in ways that you otherwise wouldn't. And, um, you know, even just being outside, you know, at the, the, you know, barbecues and talking to people and playing volleyball, you know, volleyball would somehow talk, we would start talking about hypervelocity stars, you know, and how the volleyball was moving made us think about it, you know, and, and that would create all kinds of discussions that would then lead to, to papers that we would write later on. And this is actually my second time, you know, the first time I wasn't an organizer, the second time a few of us got together and said, my, that was really fun. Let's try to organize another one of these conferences. And so far it's been really productive. Awesome. And is there any particular problem that you're working on while you're here? Yeah, so there's uh, probably too many problems that we're working on while we're here. As um, there always are. Indeed. Um, one of the big problems that we're trying to, uh, fi- or at least that I'm trying to figure out at the moment, is um, using the chemical composition of a star to age date that star. So one of the hardest, most challenging things in, in astronomy is to age a single star. You know, we just don't know how to do it. And we have some ideas, but, you know, it's, re- it's a really challenging thing to do. And the way we think we can do it is through chemistry. Kind of like DNA, the chemical DNA of a star can give you some understanding of its of its uh, of its age. But there's one hiccup that uh, people have come across, and that is that there were these stars that, if you look at uh, their detailed ages from the the highest quality data that we have today, it didn't match the chemistry. The chemistry somehow was offset from where it should have been, and so we're trying to figure out why that is, why that was, why that happened, and how that how that came about. And what we think is that it's very likely that the chemistry was different because the star gobbled up another star, which created oh. a different chemical signature. And so as a result, these stars that gobbled up other stars look um, and, and look chemically one way, but their ages may be somewhat different. So we're still trying to figure out that problem. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult problem. It's a very unique problem, but it will help us try to understand how to age date stars across the universe. That is very, very cool. And so... I guess this leads into another question that I have, which is through my research, it seems like the holy grail of galactic archaeology is finding like the first stars that were created during the Big Bang. Um, Is that what you're looking for? You know, and what is that? What does that look like? That's one of the things we're looking for. Um, The challenge is that those very first stars were likely very big. And the problem with big stars is that they live furiously and they die very quickly. Mm -hmm. So they you know, by quickly, I mean like 10 million years. Okay, so, so maybe not that quickly, but 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 quickly on a, on a cosmic scale, you know, yeah. and um, and so they're probably not around today anymore. And so what we have today are the second generation of stars that came after them, and what we're looking for in those further to find those first generation stars is the chemical compositions that would indicate that these stars have come from or been, have been birthed from those very first stars. Right, and how do you actually find out which generation you're looking at? Uh, another very difficult question. <laughs> um, the way that we mostly do this is, so in general, stars produce elements on the periodic table. So the universe basically starts with hydrogen, with helium, and with trace amounts of lithium. And that's pretty much about it. Everything else on the periodic table, the carbon in our bones, the oxygen we're breathing now, the iron in our blood, that all comes from inside of a star. And the stars basically, uh, when, they, when they die, they explode, and all of that nucleosynthetic guts that they created gets dispersed into the interstellar medium, gets dispersed into the surrounding area, pollutes it, and then a new generation of stars form. And so the most metal-poor stars that have almost no metals in them, those are likely the stars that 
uh, the first generation of stars created because those are they've only been polluted by one, maybe one supernova event, one event of one of these massive stars or one of these massive first generation stars exploding and giving their nucleus synthetic guts away. So we look primarily for metal poor stars and we look also for stars that are enhanced in particular elements that we think the first stars created, things like calcium, for example. That's very interesting. So cool. Um, so can you um, can you explain a little bit more about stellar spectroscopy and how it works? Yes, of course. So um, stellar spectroscopy is what I do, is what I focus on. And um, it's basically like for anyone on the audience who has seen the Pink Floyd album cover Dark Side of the Moon. Basically, if you take white light and you pass it through a prism, you get the beautiful color rainbow. And this is true, right? If you get any prism anywhere on planet Earth and you, you know, pass it start sunlight through it, you will get a beautiful, beautiful rainbow from blue to red. Now, if you look very closely at that rainbow, you'll see dark bands that appear in the rainbow. Those are called absorption features. And each one of them is caused by a different element in the atmosphere of the sun. So when we take sunlight and we pass it through the prism, the dark bands that appear out of that prism will end up in that color spectrum will be the different elements in the atmosphere. And the size and shape and darkness of those dark bands will allow us to determine how much of each of the elements is in the atmosphere of the sun. And so you can, de you can actually decode the chemical inventory of a star just based on this color spectrum, the dark bands and light bands that appear in that color spectrum. Very and so that's cool. what spectroscopy is all about. Very cool. And do you use polar can i ask a question here so the all of the metals can be picked up in this that's a very good question so not every element on the periodic table can be picked up and the reason for that is because the different elements have a different signature a different line um, in a different color, essentially. So for example, um, when you burn certain elements, you get different colors out. Each element has a particular set of colors that it will um, either absorb or emit. Oh, okay. And so you can't always, depending on what your wavelength regime is, that is to say, depending on if you're just looking at red to blue, you can get some elements. But if you go to the UV, you can get other elements. And if you go to a um, you know, the infrared, you can get a different set of elements. And so you can't usually pick up every element on the periodic table, but we think we can do about 30 to 40 elements. Very cool. So are these part of the chemodynamic properties of the Milky Way? And how do you, can you expound upon how those are found? Yes. Like so um, when we say we're studying the chemodynamic nature of our galaxy, we're studying the chemical nature and the dynamical nature. So the chemical nature we do from spectroscopy. And we, detail, we, you know, we look at the chemical inventory of every star that we can get a, our hands on, which is a lot, you know, it's of order of about a few million. And from that, we can actually track how the different chemical abundances vary as across the galaxy. And so this is actually making a chemical map of the galaxy. This is actually what my group does. We build some of the first large scale chemical maps of the Milky Way ever attempted. So this is like, you know, think about Lewis and Clark, right? Going westward, trying to map out the United States or, or at least the native lands at that time. And we're doing the same thing, but we're just doing it on a galactic scale and using chemistry. So right now, actually, you can walk into the Hayden Planetarium in New York City and you can fly through a 3D visualization of our galaxy where every star is color-coded by its chemical inventory. That is a map that, that my group created and that's now in the Hayden Planetarium. So that's the chemical side. 
The dynamical side is looking at the motions of the stars, how they're moving and where they're going and where they're coming from. And so you can do that by mapping two things. The first and importantly is the proper motion of the star. That is how the star is moving along the night sky. So you basically have to take a picture of a star, you know, now and then you take a picture of a star 10 years from now and 20 years from now and you see how it's moved across the sky. That gives you two dimensions of motion. It can either move um, left or right across the sky or up and down across the sky. You get the third dimension from some from actually the spectrum, and that's through the Doppler effect. The same effect that if a car goes by and goes the same effect, you can actually use the 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 shift of light, the shift of the wavelengths of light, in order to determine how fast the star is moving towards or away from you. And combining all that information together, you can determine the chemical and dynamical nature of the Milky Way. And that's what our group here in Aspen is trying to do. That's very cool. So what would you say is the trajectory of your field? Like, what are you trying to accomplish in the future? The biggest goal at the moment is to try and figure out how the Milky Way came to be. So overall in astronomy, one of the biggest questions in astronomy right now is how do galaxies form? We really don't, you know, we really don't know. We have some ideas, some good ideas, but we don't know. So people try to study this in different ways. You can use galaxies at the edge of the universe since they're very young and try to do that. It's very difficult. But what galactic archaeologists do is we use the Milky Way as a laboratory for studying these very questions. How does the Milky Way came to be? And so the holy grail of our field at some level is to try and understand what processes are important in order to form the Milky Way and in order to build the galaxy that we see today. And it's very likely that you know, processes like galactic cannibalism, where galaxies go around like the Milky Way goes around and eats other galaxies nearby is probably a large part of it. But the goal, the primary goal of our field and the future of our field really focuses on trying to understand how the Milky Way came to be. And then we can try to port those ideas into other galaxies. Um, and that's kind of more of a long-term goal. Very cool. So we can take a break on the scientific part for a minute. And um, would you mind delving into your outreach program and how you encourage students that are part of minorities to take that leap into science and scientific research? Sure. So um, I've been invested in, in um, you know, I'm, I'm an African-American astronomer. I'm one of the very few that, that, that exist. And um, it's a challenge, you know, um, growing up in a, in a predominantly white space, going to predominantly white institutions and not having very many role models from to, to, um, to look up to and to experience the subtle hints of racism here or there. And, and so one of the goals that I had was to increase the number of African-American astronomers and, and, and underrepresented minorities in science overall. So one thing that used to be the case is about it was it was about half one half of an astronomer would graduate with their PhD who is an African American per year. So my goal is to get that to at least a handful a year. Fair. Um, and so that's where my motivation for my outreach program comes from. Um, in terms of what we do outreach wise, it's a little bit tricky. So some sometimes I work on you know it's 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 all time dependent. I don't have a as much time as I used to have to work on outreach. But some of the things we used to do were star parties. We'd go out and in on the you know streets of New York City when I lived there or the streets of Ghana when I lived there or to, to the Honolulu Zoo and, and we would set up telescopes and we would, you know, bring children in and, and tell them about the stars and have them actually see 
maybe the stars or the planets for the very first time. And, and that was always an enlightening experience. So star parties were one really big aspect of it. But other big aspects might be things like, you know, going into classrooms. I've recently gone into a set of classrooms in, in Texas and talked to them about what it's like to be an astronomer and, um, and also, you know, working with uh, summer programs that are primarily devoted to um, underrepresented minorities like Upward Bound or the BAME programs in the United Kingdom and so forth. So there's lots of wonderful programs out there. And my goal is to tap into those programs to get more uh, minorities involved in the sciences. Well, I think that's just incredible. Um, what's your favorite part of galactic archaeology? Ooh, that's a hard one. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's a couple of things that really stand out to me as like highlights of, of the job that I have. One is traveling to places like Aspen and traveling to conferences and telescopes around the world. You know, when I was growing up, my parents worked for the United States Postal Service and they were always busy and we never went on, uh, you know, vacations. I'd never been on an aircraft until I won a science fair and then got to go on an aircraft for the first time. So I've traveled the world and lived around the world because of the science that I do. Um, and that's, so that's one of the key highlights. Another one I think is sometimes, you know, you'll discover something, you'll be the only person in the world that knows something. And that's a pretty cool feeling to have too. You know, I was, um, you know, found some hypervelocity stars. These are stars that are moving so fast. They're unbound to the Milky Way. They're moving at, you know, maybe, uh, only about 3 million miles an hour or so. Um, and uh, I was one of the first people in the world to find some of them and um, to find these particular types of hypervelocity stars. And so it was really cool being the only person in the world knowing something. And I think also just the teaching aspect. You know, right. for me, it is being in a classroom and watching a student's face light up like, oh, I finally get it. I finally get Kepler's third law. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, that that is an amazing experience. So those are the, those are some of the highlights of the things that I like about the, the job that I have. Right, and that just guides me right into my next question, which is, um, is there one particular finding in the course of your research that has surprised you or has had an unexpected outcome or is just completely new? Yeah, so I think um, one thing that, that has been kind of interesting is, is both something that uh, we, me and my PhD advisor, you know, one of my PhD advisors who actually is here, you know, she's, she's not here in Aspen, she's virtually attending because of, of COVID, but she was gonna be coming to the Aspen program. Um, we were looking at um, the chemical composition of a group of stars and people had noticed that there were, if you look into the oldest stars in the galaxy and you looked at the chemistry, they seem to fall into two major groups. And, you know, people assumed one group was formed here in the Milky Way and the other group was accreted by many systems that the Milky Way has eaten. And at the time, we uh, sat down and we thought about it and we looked at the chemical abundances and we said, hmm, this seems like it might come from one galaxy. And we were too afraid to publish this result. Um, the data wasn't quite good enough, but we called this, we called this galaxy the Atlantis galaxy, the lost city of Atlantis in some sense. And... Years later, Gaia, Gaia came around. Gaia is a spacecraft that we work with that is mapping the galaxy for the first time in, in three dimensions. And Gaia actually discovered this galaxy. And so there's now two separate studies, one that called this, this galaxy the Gaia Enceladus and the other that called the galaxy the Gaia Sausage. And now the galaxy, this, this uh, now in, in, in modern literature, um, so modern by, by that I mean literature after 2018 now says that they're, the Milky Way has eaten one galaxy, one big galaxy about 8 billion years ago called the Gaia Enceladus Sausage. And it was a cool feeling to, to realize, even though we didn't publish that result, 
we had that idea and called it the Atlantis many years prior when I was a graduate student. And so it was a, it was a lot of uh, memories of, of, of recognizing that's new, that's exciting. But also I think it was a story of, for me, it was a story of, you know, um, sometimes uh, you are too afraid to publish something and too afraid to be controversial. And sometimes it's okay to, to, to be controversial and, right. and to publish the, the difficult results. Right. So why sausage? Ah, uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a challenging thing to answer. But basically, it's because um, if you look at a specific uh, plot of the velocities of the stars as they're moving radially in and out of the galaxy, and the velocity of the stars as they're moving around the galaxy, it looks like the stars are all moving radially, so they're squashed in one direction like a sausage. Oh. That was the that was the reason why this was uh, done by Vasily Belukharov, um, like and that. this was not actually not long after we. Um, we all got together in Aspen, actually, in, the, in our 2018, um, our, in our in, in 2018. So this was actually so a lot of these initial conversations started happening here in Aspen, actually, in 2018. All right. Looking back, do you wish you had published, or were you just too new in your field to take the leap? I, you know, I think both uh, the person who who did this with me is Paulo Yoffrey. And Paula and I, uh, who actually gave the uh, public colloquium yes. last last year, yes. uh, Paula and I, uh, I think we were we still to this day feel a little bit sad that we didn't publish that result, but we were taking a little bit of a leap with the data, so the data wasn't quite there to say that. But it was it's just a cool thinking. It's just cool to think that like this idea that caught on a couple years later, we were talking about you know um, years prior. But yeah, it is it's a little sad that we didn't publish it. <laughs> So yeah. goes science. <laughs> so for all the kids out there, what were you doing when you were about my age? So um, when I was in high school, so I assume you mean high school, mm-hmm. um, I was, you know, um, excited and interested to go to college. I was really kind of couldn't wait to get out of the house. And uh, I grew up in Canton, Ohio, so it's a relatively small city and, well, bigger than Aspen. Uh, but I grew up in a small city in Ohio, so I was ready to kind of get out and experience the world. So I, I was excited to go on to college. And I, when, I, when I got to college, I actually, you know, was, I knew I was going to study astrophysics, but I tacked on an African studies degree because I got excited about African studies. And I went and lived in Ghana and taught middle schools. So um, I would say, like, at that time, I was just having fun with with learning and having fun with exploring the world, this world that I hadn't really seen too much of, you know, growing up. Very cool. So would you mind telling me a little bit more about your research on high-velocity stars? Of course. So I got interested in hyper and high-velocity stars when I was an undergraduate. I did an, a research experience for undergraduate funded by the National Science Foundation at the University of Hawaii. So I, it was amazing. I actually, uh, you know, for me, it was an undergraduate. I, you know, was living in Ohio. I'd never been to Hawaii. And I got to spend a whole summer there. And so I, I went to Honolulu and I started working with a, um, a professor that, or a, a postdoc there named Adam Krauss. And um, Adam and I were working on trying to find these really fast moving stars. And um, we think that they're actually produced by a triple body encounter, which basically just means it's, it's two stars orbiting each other. And one star gets a little bit too close to the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, and the other star gets ripped apart at an enormously high velocity. So these are called hypervelocity stars. They're moving so fast, they're actually unbound to the Milky Way. And um, we were trying to discover 
not only do they exist, we knew that they existed from an earlier study, but we were trying to figure out if uh, the only ones that have been known have been really massive stars. We were trying to figure out if lower mass stars existed in this that were also moving really fast. Um, and we were also trying to figure out um, um, whether or not these stars were coming from the galactic center or if they were coming from elsewhere, which would indicate a different theory had to be real about the production of these particular stars. And so my goal as, a, as this undergraduate student in uh, working with Adam Krauss was to actually figure out if we can find any of these low mass hypervelocity stars, which might indicate then that they don't come from the galactic center. Um, and that was a really exciting project. And what's funny about it is, you know, Adam Krauss actually is a colleague of mine at University of Texas at Austin. We both became faculty there, um, even though he was my mentor. And in addition to that, even today, I still work on hypervelocity stars. Even And I got inspired about it from this simple uh, summer project that I did as an undergrad, but I'm still working on it today. And actually, my, my first big NSF grant was actually to uncover the nature of hypervelocity stars, where I actually tried to figure out what we, what we basically tried to do was we realized, or I realized that one can actually use the chemical DNA of a hypervelocity star to tag where it came from in the galaxy. And no one had done that before. But I had learned chemistry. I had learned like chemical mapping of stars when I was an undergrad. I learned hypervelocity stars, but I didn't think about it until after I became a graduate student that you can combine them. And so I combined them for the first time and got an NSF grant to actually figure out how where these stars are coming from based on their chemical DNA. It's kind of like... Um, you know, 23andMe, right? If you take a DNA test yeah. and you try to figure out where your ancestors came from, I can do that with stars. And That's I can so do that cool. specifically with hypervelocity stars to figure out where they were coming from. Did you find any low mass? Uh, we have quite a few candidates. Um, and Gaia, of course, certainly helped with that. Um, and it looks like most of the candidates that we have are not coming from the center part of the galaxy. So this idea that I described at the beginning, that you have two stars orbiting each other and one star gets captured by the black hole, that can't be how all of them are produced because we've chemically identified that they don't all come from the center parts of the galaxy. 